0: The Chancellor of Germany will meet with President Biden in Washington today. Russia's invasion of Ukraine will be a big topic of discussion. It's Friday, March 3rd. This is WBR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Chenoy. Coming up, people in Ohio confront the rail operator behind last month's train wreck.
1: All the citizens here of East Palestine need answers.
0: They say they're suffering from illnesses and blame the derailment. Also, we hear from the U.S. task force that's seizing assets from Russian oligarchs. And this hour...
2: FIRE! SMOKE! SIGNAL PROBLEM! POLICE ACTION!
1: SWITCHING ERROR!
0: Singing about problems on the subway. We check out T, an MBTA musical. In sports, Bruins win, cloudy today, and in the 40s, snow moves in tonight. It's 7.01. Now the news.
3: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Disbarred South Carolina attorney, Alec Murdoch will be sentenced this morning for murdering his wife and son. A jury convicted him on both counts yesterday and on weapons charges. Immediately after the verdict, Murdoch's defense team asked the judge to declare a mistrial. Judge Clifton Newman refused, saying after a six week trial, jurors were clear about the evidence.
4: The jury has now considered the evidence um, for a significant period of time, and um, the evidence of guilt is overwhelming, and uh, I deny the
3: motion. Alec Murdoch faces 30 years to life on each murder conviction. President Biden meets with Germany's chancellor today at the White House, as NPR's Osma Holland reports, Biden and Olaf Scholz are expected to focus largely on Russia's war in Ukraine.
5: This is the German Chancellor's second visit to the White House, and it comes one year into Russia's invasion of Ukraine. A bulk of the meeting will likely focus on the war and the need to maintain support for Ukraine. The Biden White House has been keen to maintain transatlantic unity in its response to Russia. Germany is a key NATO ally and earlier this year agreed to start shipping tanks to Ukraine. The White House says the two leaders are also expected to discuss common challenges faced by China. The United States and its European allies have expressed concern about China possibly sending weapons to Russia.
3: Asma Khalid, NPR News. The White House is poised to announce a fresh tranche of military aid to Ukraine. This is expected to be about $400 million. And the aid will include ammunition for Ukrainian troops who are running low on supplies. Firefighters in Southern California say they're checking on residents in mountainous communities who've been stuck in their homes after heavy winter storms. They're trapped by snow. It's far more than the region is accustomed to getting. Snow has caved in some roofs. Other people have lost heat and are low on food. Parts of Central and Northern California are under fresh winter storm warnings. The Texas Republican Party may take action to punish U.S. Congressman Tony Gonzalez. Texas Public Radio's Josh Peck reports Gonzalez is defending his recent vote on gun reform legislation.
6: The Safer Communities Act, passed in the aftermath of the elementary school shooting in Uvalde last year, enhances background checks for potential gun buyers under 21. Gonzalez is one of the few Texas Republican House members who voted for the bill, and the state GOP is now threatening to censure him this weekend. But he says he has no regrets.
7: If the vote was today on the Safer Community Act, I would vote twice on it if I could. The reality is the Safer's Community Act would have prevented the Uvalde shooting.
6: His Republican critics say they also plan to center Gonzalez because he voted for a bill that safeguards same-sex and interracial marriages. I'm Josh Peck in San Antonio.
3: You're listening to NPR. From WBOR
0: in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. One in four Massachusetts doctors say they're planning to leave medicine within two years. That's a key finding from a survey done by the Massachusetts Medical Society. WBUR's Priyanka Dale McCloskey reports that burnout among health care workers got worse during the pandemic. More than half of the almost 600 doctors surveyed said they've already
8: cut back on time with patients or are likely to do so, and many are leaving their jobs altogether. Dr. Ted Kalianos is president of the Massachusetts Medical Society. He says doctors are stressed by administrative burdens and staffing shortages.
9: The pandemic really has added to the difficulties, and for some, uh, it's resulted in them leaving the workforce sooner than perhaps. They could have, and certainly a number of physicians that I know have left.
8: 55% of doctors said they're burnt out, though the rate is higher among
0: women. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Thayal-McCluskey. The state auditor wants to audit the MBTA. The so-called performance audit will start later this month. State auditor Diana DiZaglio says her investigation will focus on safety risk management and areas the T can improve. It will focus on the years 2021 and 2022. The T says it plans to cooperate eBay is beginning settlement talks over a lawsuit involving a harassment campaign against a native couple. In 2019, former employees of the e-commerce giant terrorized the couple over their negative online articles. That included sending live spiders and a funeral wreath to their home. Seven former eBay employees have pleaded guilty for their involvement. The Boston Globe reports the company could pay a fine of tens of millions of dollars. The New Hampshire-based Old Farmer's Almanac is looking for a new editor. It's only had 13 of them since it began publishing back in 1792. Janice Stillman became the first woman to hold the position when she got the job in 2000. After 23 years, she's stepping down. Stillman says the almanac editor needs to have a sense of humor and be open to lots of different topics. I think
10: the most important thing is the editor has to be curious because there are so many areas of interest that we cover and so many topics. You have to trust your own judgment, but you have to realize that you have to step out of the box sometimes and go into an area that you might not otherwise have tread into.
0: The almanac is best known for its weather forecasts, although studies have found they're only accurate about half the time.
11: It's 706. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by New Art Center in Newton, a community arts education space for all ages and all levels of ability. Register for spring classes at newartcenter.org. The Bruins won their
0: ninth in a row last night. They beat the Buffalo Sabres 7-1 at the Garden. The Bees will host the New York Rangers tomorrow. Tonight, the Celtics host the Brooklyn Nets. Increasing clouds throughout the day today will get into the lower 40s. Snow moves in after midnight. It'll be around freezing overnight. Rain and snow throughout the day tomorrow, just an inch or so along the coast, 2 to 4 around Boston and 6 to 8 inches expected in Worcester and the Merrimack Valley. It'll also be windy and in the 30s. The snow ends late Saturday afternoon. On Sunday, it'll be partly sunny and around 40. It's 35 degrees in Boston at 707.
12: WBR supporters include Sony Pictures Classics presenting Return to Seoul, a film by Davy Hsu about a woman who embarks on a journey to South Korea where she was born before being adopted and raised in
5: France, now playing select cities. It's
13: Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Today, President Biden hosts German Chancellor Olaf Scholz at the White House. Judging by the
5: outward signs, the meeting is a little unusual. It's not exactly secret. Here we are talking about it. But the two leaders are not calling much attention to their agenda. Analysts think the two leaders may be talking through their concerns about China, a country they see differently.
13: NPR Berlin correspondent Rob Schmitz is covering this. Hey there, Rob. Hey, Steve. In what way are Biden and Schultz keeping this low-key?
2: Yeah, it's a little odd. The press will not be traveling with Chancellor Schultz on this trip. There's no press conference on the agenda, and the German chancellery is not sharing any details of what will be discussed. According to German media, Chancellor Schultz is planning to give an exclusive interview to CNN, but that apparently won't be broadcast until Sunday. So there's this aura of mystery around this visit. I spoke to Rachel Tausenfreund about this. She's a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund, and she thinks Chancellor Scholz is making this trip to try and persuade President Biden to tamp down what has become an escalating rhetoric on China's involvement in Russia's war in Ukraine. Here's what she said. People
11: in Germany and in the chancery look at this kind of escalating rhetoric in
0: Washington of an uh, unavoidable, escalation of conflict with China um, and view that with some concern and think that an escalation is still avoidable. And so that's gonna be the difficult part for Olaf Scholz and German politics in general, um, if tensions continue to rise with China.
13: I guess we should remind people of one specific point of tension. Of course, there's this war in Ukraine. Russia has invaded Ukraine. Germany is defending Ukraine. China is an ally of Russia. And Washington has been warning that China might be planning to send weapons to help Russia.
2: Right. And, you know, China's been responding to an increased sort of rhetoric from Washington with tough rhetoric of its own, saying that U.S. should not be dictating what China should do. And just this week, China welcomed Putin ally Alexander Lukashenko, president of Belarus, with a 21-gun salute in Beijing. So it is clear that tensions between China and the West are on the rise because of all of this.
13: And the United States wants allies in confronting China because the country is is so big, so powerful. It would like to have allies like Germany on the same page. Why would Schultz instead be the one to try to calm things
2: down? A few reasons. Uh, Germany's relationship with China, while it's been more tense in recent years, is still pretty cordial when, when compared to the U.S. relationship with China. Part of the reason for that is that Germany depends greatly on trade with China. Germany's auto industry, chemical industry, industry in general in Germany needs the China market to generate revenue in what is now a recession in Germany. Secondly, it's clear that Chancellor Schultz is concerned about what could happen should China enter into this conflict by supplying Russia with weapons. This could have big consequences on the outcome of the war. Such as? Well, due to Germany's proximity to Ukraine, this could mean more refugees from Ukraine arriving in Germany. This could also result in a more emboldened Vladimir Putin, who may not stop with Ukraine ever since the war began. Schultz has been very careful, as critics say, too careful, to avoid being involved in any escalation with Russia. And now China's potential role in this conflict is even more of a headache for him. So it's clear this will be a big part of his discussions with President Biden later today.
13: NPR's Rob Schmitz, thanks so much. Thank you. Let's talk this through with Jeff Rathke, formerly with the US State Department and now president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins. Welcome to the program. Good morning, Steve. I want to work through a couple of issues here, and one of them is just the effort to keep China out of the war in Ukraine, keep China from sending weapons to Russia for its invasion of Ukraine. Do you think the two leaders agree on how to approach that?
14: I think they do broadly because they both see the enormous risks if China were to escalate by providing weapons to Russia. And the United States and Europe, let's remember, have been in lockstep Uh, on their sanctions approach to Russia since uh, the invasion began and so I think that's going to be a central part of what they need to plan for is what steps the United States and the European Union can take um, in order to uh, deter uh, China from uh, contemplating or taking that step.
13: Okay, so that feels kind of urgent because the United States has been issuing these warnings the same way that once upon a time they were warning that Russia was about to invade Ukraine. They seem to be making these same warnings about China's next action. But there is a larger issue here I want to ask about. And that is the US approach to China generally. As we've been reporting, there's a bipartisan consensus in the United States that engagement with China hasn't worked, that the United States needs a much tougher approach to China. Does Germany join that consensus? There's
14: growing concern in in Germany about their exposure to China. Um, economically, and that that could have strategic implications. There's no doubt about that, and you see this across uh, the mainstream German political parties. Um, but let's also keep in mind, I think, I think as your uh, conversation with Rob Schmitz pointed out, Germany is the largest European economy. The it's a trade dependent economy and China is its biggest trading partner. And by the way, the United States uh, had $527 billion in imports from China last year. Mm -hmm. So there's also a US uh, economic exposure that just means you need to think these things through carefully if you want to rebalance that relationship.
13: I'm thinking through carefully the differences between US trade with China and German trade with China. The US of course sells stuff in China, but as you just pointed out with that huge number of imports, What's mainly happening with the United States is that the United States is manufacturing things in China that then get brought back to the United States. The U.S. and its companies can find other places to do some of that. They're, in fact, in the process of finding other places to manufacture things. But it sounds like Germany, to a greater extent, is profiting by selling things to China. They need access to that market. Do they need China more? Uh, they need it in a
14: in a slightly different way but i think uh, it's worth pointing out uh, you know germany also has a trade deficit with china now and has for a couple of years so hmm. what you see is sector by sector the automobile industry the chemicals industry the engineering industry they uh, do great business with china they export uh, to china and they are heavily invested there for all the other uh, German economic actors, they face these same questions about resilient supply chains, um, about redundancy and all the things that have been exposed not only by the the COVID-19 pandemic, but also by China's uh, growing assertiveness and uh, aspirations to shape uh, the global economy.
13: In the last year, Germany has reached the moment of realizing they can't depend on Russian energy anymore, that that is too much of a strategic risk. Uh, It sounds like they're not quite there, but approaching the idea that their trade with China may also be a strategic risk they can't depend on so much anymore. Germany's
14: already taken some steps uh, in this direction. Uh, For example, they've placed some new limits on export uh, credit insurance, foreign investment insurance, sending a signal to the German economy that, uh, that if they uh, you know, increase their exposure to the Chinese economy, they increasingly will do so at their own risk. And so this is about you know uh, turning the aircraft carrier, uh, so to speak, in, in preserving the economic relationships but making sure they adapt uh, in changing circumstances. That balance is what Germany's always striving for and I think will be on the chancellor's mind when he talks about China with President Biden today.
13: In a few seconds here, do you think these two leaders broadly understand each other, get each other?
14: I think so. I think they really depend on each other. And you see that the way President Biden approached the tank issue with Germany. And you see it uh, in also the way uh, that uh, Chancellor Schultz uh, has focused on the U.S. relationship since uh, the war in Ukraine.
13: Jeff Rathke of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins. Thanks so much.
14: Pleasure.
5: One of the most revered saxophone players in jazz has died. Wayne Shorter started playing the sax in New Jersey in the
13: 1950s when he earned the nickname the Newark Flash. What a nickname, the Newark Flash. After he began his saxophone career, he had a little diversion, went to the Army for a few years, then came back and got his first taste of national attention as the music director for Art Blakey's band, the Jazz Messengers.
5: Then Miles Davis called on him to compose songs that became jazz standards.
13: Wayne Shorter once told NPR that he and Miles Davis
15: never rehearsed. The six years I was with Miles, we never talked about music. We were actually playing music as we were talking. When we talked on the phone, Miles would say, we're going to record next week. I had a book that I wrote music in. He said, bring the book. When we got in the studio, there's a point at which we played like that, da da-da, like that. It, it just came out.
5: Shorter played with Davis through his electric phase and then built on that sound by forming the influential jazz fusion band Weather Report.
13: If there's an award for a jazz musician, Wayne Shorter won it. Kennedy Center Honors, NEA Jazz Master. At the end of a career that began in the 50s, as we said, he received his 12th Grammy Award just last month, shortly before his death at the age of
5: 89. Wow. His friend and former bandmate Herbie Hancock says Shorter left us with courage in his heart, love, and compassion for all.
0: This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, we learn about a Justice Department task force that's seizing all the luxury items it can from Russian oligarchs. And we remember Xander Fleminster, the first black woman chosen by the Secret Service to serve as special agent. It's 7
12: we're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bernadine Son megason and Tim O'Sullivan with Compass New England, helping clients navigate the evolving Massachusetts real estate market. More at homesbybernadine.com.
16: How do you translate the horror of World War I into a film score?
6: I want to have something for the main protagonist, the feeling from his stomach that he feels always when he's in the trenches
16: i'm elsa chang we'll talk to the composer who wrote the oscar nominated score for all quiet on the western front on all things considered from npr news listen today starting at four on 90.9 wbur
0: A heads-up for T-Riders this weekend. Buses will replace red-line trains between Harvard and JFK UMass tomorrow and Sunday. On the commuter rail, buses will replace trains on the Haverhill line between Haverhill and Reading. That closure begins tomorrow and will last until March 12th. Clouds move in throughout the day today and we will have a high near 41. Tonight, a low around 33. Overnight, snow mixed with sleet, then a foggy, windy Saturday morning with a snow mixed with sleet and rain. We'll have a High around 38. More snow expected Saturday night, and it'll still be windy. In all, we may get up to an inch along the coast. Areas around Worcester and the Merrimack Valley may end up with six to eight inches, two to four inches in the Boston area. Sunday, partly sunny with a high near 41. It's 35 degrees in Boston at 721.
10: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to develop new cancer therapies by attacking cancer through multiple pathways. More about this momentum of discovery at DanaFarber.org stories. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. And from the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is NPR.
13: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep.
5: And I'm Leila Faldil. A year ago, the Justice Department unleashed a task force to target allies of Russia's President Vladimir Putin and their riches from luxury yachts to opulent homes. NPR Justice Correspondent Ryan Lucas brings us this update.
17: Less than a week after Russian tanks swept across the Ukrainian border, Attorney General Merrick Garland stood at the podium at the Justice Department to announce the creation of Task Force KleptoCapture. Its mission, he said was to hold accountable Russian oligarchs trying to evade sanctions the U.S. and its allies had imposed in response to the Kremlin's invasion.
18: We will leave no stone unturned in our efforts to investigate, arrest, and prosecute those whose criminal acts enable the Russian government to continue this unjust war. And over the past year, the task
17: force has kept busy. It's brought charges against at least 35 individuals and corporate entities, A list that includes Oleg Deripaska, a Russian billionaire who's been accused of sanctions violations. It's also brought charges against suspected Russian intelligence officers and individuals working with them to allegedly obtain advanced American technology that could be used by the Russian military.
8: We thought it was really important to go after, in the first instance, those individuals whose corruption has fueled the Russian war machine.
17: That's Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco
8: and to send a very clear signal that we could work quickly with our partners
19: and that we could set a pace for enforcement of these sanctions.
17: Part of that enforcement work has involved seizing some of the big-ticket items that Kremlin-aligned oligarchs have reaped from their allegedly ill-gotten gains. Last May, for example, the FBI assisted authorities in Fiji to seize a 348-foot luxury yacht that the U.S. says belongs to sanctioned oligarch Suleiman Karimov. The $300 million vessel now sits at a dock in San Diego. And just last week, the department filed a forfeiture complaint for six properties worth an estimated $75 million in New York and Florida, belonging to another oligarch. And all Monaco tells NPR, the task force has seized, forfeited or otherwise restrained more than half a billion dollars in Russian oligarch assets over the past year. And the task force, she says, has now entered a second phase
20: which is to go after the enablers, the facilitators, the companies
8: that prop up and enable and facilitate the ability of these oligarchs to hide their wealth, to shield it, to evade sanctions.
17: A prime example of targeting so-called enablers is the case against Deripaska, who's been sanctioned for his alleged ties to the Putin regime. Deripaska and three women have been charged with conspiracy to violate U.S. sanctions Part of the alleged scheme involved arranging for Deripaska's Russian girlfriend to give birth in the United States. Deripaska's U.S. attorney, Eric Ferrari, declined to comment on the case. But Ferrari says his office is fielding calls on a daily basis from Russians with sanctions-related questions.
1: It's been a huge jump, and I would say our caseload has doubled over the last
17: year. Some of the callers want advice on how to comply with sanctions, he says. Others are looking for help to get out from under the punitive measures. While the task force and the broader international effort has imposed a degree of discomfort on Kremlin-aligned oligarchs, there's little indication that it's prompted them to pressure Putin to pull back in Ukraine, as some Western policymakers had hoped. In part, says Alexander Gabuev, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment, that's because the people who matter most in Russia are those in charge of large armed bureaucracies, like the army, security services, and the police.
21: Everybody else
15: is exactly people with means but without any protection from the system and just too afraid to be thrown into jail.
17: Back in the U.S. meanwhile the Justice Department is moving forward with the first ever transfer to Ukraine of money seized from a sanctioned oligarch. It's just over five million dollars which is of course a drop in the ocean of Ukraine's needs at the moment but Monaco says it's just a start of putting oligarch riches to the benefit of the Ukrainian people. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington.
13: A Secret Service trailblazer has died. Zandra Flemister was the first black woman to serve as a Secret Service Special Agent. She did that in the 1970s. She left the service after just four years because of the way that colleagues treated her. But NPR's Rachel Triesman reports she still opened a door.
22: Flemister grew up in a military family and believed she was destined for government service. About a year out of college, she met a Secret Service recruiter at a job fair who encouraged her to apply for a special agent position, and she got it. Flumister's husband, John Collins, says she loaded up her AMC Hornet and drove down from Connecticut to Washington in the summer of 1974.
21: That was the point at which she discovered that she was a racial pioneer. Nobody had said anything to her about it at the time that they recruited her.
22: Flemister worked protective details for figures like First Daughters Susan Ford and Amy Carter and former First Lady Lady Bird Johnson. But she was mostly assigned to counterfeit and Treasury fraud work, duties that she feared wouldn't advance her career. Retired Secret Service Assistant Director Renee Triplett didn't know Flemister personally, but she does know how that system works. If
3: your resume doesn't reflect the level of responsibility of a supervisor or management or leader, then you can't be competitive
22: for the next level. Flemister would later describe her experience as lacking in professional development, but full of tokenization and racial hostility. A supervisor told her she'd have to change her Afro hairstyle in order to get better assignments. A colleague taped a picture of a gorilla over her photo ID.
21: She said, I knew within a year or so that my career would be 20 years and I would be a shriveled up, bitter husk. And I did not want that.
22: Flumister left the Secret Service in 1978, taking a pay cut and a new job at the State Department. She spent the next three decades in the Foreign Service, traveling the world and rising through the ranks.
17: She had a reputation at State
21: for being absolutely unflappable in a crisis.
22: Alzheimer's disease forced Flumister to retire in 2011, and she died last week at the age of 71. This is
3: the career path she wanted, when even in America, it didn't seem possible for a Black person to excel in the manner that she did.
22: Triplett says there are more women and people of color in Secret Service leadership now than when she arrived in the 1980s. And Collins says he's heard from many Black women in the Secret Service who have been moved by Flemister's story and will now help keep it alive. Rachel Treisman, NPR News.
13: this is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi Coming up here on Morning Edition, East Palestine, Ohio residents last night confronted officials with the company behind a toxic derailment there with angry accusations of illnesses in the area. It's 729. Follow the news all day with WBUR. We're at 90.9 on the radio, WBUR.org online and on the WBUR mobile app on your phone. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars.
9: WBUR supporters include Broadway in Boston, celebrating 20 years with Lexus with the newly announced 23-24 season, featuring Disney's Frozen, Moulin Rouge, Girl from the North Country, Company, and MJ the Musical. Season tickets and more information are available at lexusbroadwayandboston.com.
23: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. China's relationship with Russia is expected to be a major focus of today's meeting between President Biden and German Chancellor Olaf Scholz at the White House. NPR's Rob Schmitz says the war in Ukraine is expected to dominate discussions.
2: It's clear that Chancellor Scholz is concerned about what could happen should China enter into this conflict by supplying Russia with weapons. This could have big consequences on the outcome of the war.
23: Dozens of European diplomats have traveled to the Israeli-occupied West Bank to visit the site of this week's Israeli settler rampage. As NPR's Daniel Estrin reports, Israeli troops are blocking entry to Israelis who came to show support.
2: There are Israeli soldiers all along this road holding weapons, standing guard in the Palestinian town of Hawara. The army has ordered Palestinians to close their shops here to prevent friction with Israeli settlers in the area after the settler rampage this week. We just saw an Israeli settler lawmaker come to protest a delegation of European diplomats who came to see cars that were torched. Palestinians protested and soldiers used tear gas to disperse them. Up the road, the Israeli military has prevented buses of hundreds of Israelis from arriving here for a solidarity visit with Palestinians. Thursday, Palestinian officials say troops killed a 15-year-old Palestinian boy during clashes. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Hawara at the West Bank. This is NPR News.
0: From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoi. A chain of addiction treatment centers in Massachusetts and Rhode Island is now closed. Its CEO and a supervising counselor are charged with running a health insurance fraud scheme. Federal prosecutors allege the clinics, run by Recovery Connection Centers of America, saw patients for as little as five minutes but billed for longer treatment sessions. Joseph Bonavotola is the FBI's special agent in charge of the Boston Division.
7: The allegations set forth in this case represent one of the most brazen and egregious examples of health care fraud the FBI has seen here in Rhode Island in recent history.
0: The CEO of the chain, Michael Breyer, is accused of being one of the leaders of the addiction therapy fraud scheme. He was arrested yesterday at his home in Newton. A former Massachusetts congressman has died. Brian Donnelly represented parts of Boston and the South Shore in Washington for more than a decade. He was best known for his work in getting visas for Irish immigrants. He was also the last person to represent the state's 11th congressional district before it was eliminated in 1993. Donnelly was 76 years old. Pickleball is one of the fastest-growing sports, but not everyone in Wellesley is a fan. The town's recreation committee will hold a meeting today to hear from people who are upset with the noise the sport makes. They don't like the repetitive sound made when the plastic pickleball hits the players' paddles. Wellesley isn't the only place with a pickleball problem. The Wall Street Journal reports residents of Falmouth sued the town over the sport's noise. It's 7.33.
12: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Build entrepreneurial skills and make an impact with a Babson MBA. Apply by March 16th to start this fall, babson.edu
0: slash MBA. The Bruins beat the Buffalo Sabres to 7-1 last night at the Garden, and with the win, Boston became the fastest team in NHL history to reach 100 points. The Bees will host the New York Rangers tomorrow. Tonight at the Garden, the Celtics will play the Brooklyn Nets, and at spring training in Florida yesterday. The Red Sox beat the Phillies 15-3. to The Sox play the Twins this afternoon. It'll gradually grow overcast today. The high will be right around 40. WBUR meteorologist Daniel
24: Noyce says snow will begin around midnight tonight. It'll come down at a steady clip overnight, though some mixing with sleet and rain is likely for a period of time before changing back to snow tomorrow. The worst over by mid to late morning. Some light snow lingers until early afternoon. Everything ends 3 to 5 PM. Snow totals according to an inch or so for the Cape to the South Shore, two to four inches in Boston and Metro West, four to six inches north and west of the city, with six to eight along the Mass New Hampshire border. Expect some tough travel tonight into tomorrow morning. Wind advisory in place tomorrow at the coast, gusts 40 to 50 miles per hour. some isolated outages.
0: Sunday, partly sunny with a high near 41. Right now, it's 35 degrees in Boston at 734.
10: Support for NPR comes from this station and from ECMC Foundation, working to improve post-secondary educational outcomes for underserved students through evidence-based innovation. Learn more at ecmcfoundation.org and from the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, for 30 years, committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org. It's Morning Edition from
5: NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin.
13: And I'm Steve Inskeep, good morning. People living near a derailed freight train in East Palestine, Ohio, turned up for a town hall meeting last night. Unlike some other meetings, representatives of the railroad showed up. So did federal regulators and Julie Grant of the environmental radio show Allegheny Front.
19: This was the first time Norfolk Southern faced the people of East Palestine directly, and the company's Daryl Wilson stood on the high school auditorium stage as one person after another explained how the contamination has harmed them. Some told stories of houses covered in black soot. Others spoke of children vomiting and constant headaches. One man said he'd lost his job and was afraid to plant a garden, while another said he couldn't get financing to buy a new house. To all of this, Wilson apologized. He said the company is very sorry and feels horrible about it. But that just wasn't enough for the crowd of angry and devastated people who don't feel it's safe to go home but can't afford to move. At the raucous meeting, people shouted over Wilson, imploring Norfolk Southern to pay for them to move elsewhere. The company and regulators spoke of their efforts to continue monitoring the air, test the drinking water, clean the streams, and remove waste from the derailment site. There's been a call to test for dioxins, cancer-causing chemicals that can be created in combustion, like the chemical explosion whose plume darkened the sky for miles around. The EPA had declined to test for it until shortly before this meeting when the agency announced it would require Norfolk Southern to test for dioxins. Kristen Battaglia works in supply chain management and takes care of her grandmother, the former mayor of East Palestine. She says this area has been in recovery from the loss of its steel economy decades ago and more recently from the opioid crisis.
3: We were reversing that.
10: It just breaks my heart, all the hard work that these good-hearted people have done to try to regain our economy. And this is just, it's just shattered it.
19: For NPR News, I'm Julie Grant in East Palestine, Ohio. Now, scientists are also concerned about high
5: levels of hazardous chemicals in the air around East Palestine. Texas A&M professor Wei Shui-Chu leads a team that's been looking for answers, and he's with us now. Good morning. Thanks for being on the program.
6: Good morning. Pleasure to be here.
5: So what are you finding? We heard these very scared residents just now. Is the air safe to breathe like the EPA is
6: saying? So, we've been conducting some mobile sampling, uh, which means that we can drive around the town and look at air quality throughout different parts of the town, not just at a couple of fixed locations like that EPA has monitoring stations. Uh, so, our first set of sampling data we released last night, it shows that for four particular chemicals of concern, uh, benzene, xylene, toluene, and vinyl chloride, and vinyl chloride is a carcinogen that was being carried on the train, our measurements were consistent with EPAs and were below levels of exposures uh, of concern uh, for exposures up to a year or more. And we didn't, furthermore, didn't find any hot spots for those chemicals.
5: So what does that mean? Are people safe to drink the water, to breathe the air? What does it mean for people in East Palestine?
6: So we're still conducting additional analysis. Uh, we're only focused on the air, so I can't comment on the water and, and soil at the moment. Uh, but there is one issue of the chemical acrolein, mm-hmm. which we had previously noted uh, some of the EPA data were above levels that were considered of minimal risk for longer term exposures. Uh, and additionally, one limitation of EPA's data is that their analytical method can't detect levels low enough to really fully appri- provide that assurance of safety. In other words, the detection limits for that particular chemical, acrolein, mm-hmm. is higher than what would be considered a minimal level of risk.
5: And what would that chemical acrolein do to people's health long-term if it continues to be high, higher levels in the air?
6: So acrolein is a respiratory toxicant. It means it affects the respiratory system, the nose, the, um, the throat, and the lungs. Mm-hmm. And uh, over long periods in animal studies, it's uh, caused... Low levels have caused uh, problems in the, particularly the nasal passages. Uh, And also, a couple years ago, there was a new uh, rodent study that found that it caused uh, nasal tumors over lifetime exposures. However, you know, we did conduct mobile sampling data on acrolein as well, although our mobile sampling data can't be directly compared to those minimal risk levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we instead compared to other locations, in terms uh, specifically downtown Pittsburgh, where Carnegie Mellon, which is part of our team, has been sampling. Mm-hmm. We found that levels in East Palestine for acrolein range from about five times lower to about three times higher than downtown Pittsburgh. Those levels also tended to be concentrated in sort of the southern and eastern parts of town uh, closer to the accident site.
5: So. If you could just help help us out for non-scientists, what this mm-hmm. means for a regular person living near the derailment, if you find higher levels of this chemical and lower levels of other, in other parts, should they be concerned? What should they be doing? How long should you be testing?
6: Well, so this is a rural area, so you wouldn't expect levels to be similar to, like, downtown Pittsburgh. Right. Uh, now, you know, but they, the levels aren't uniformly higher know, like 10 times higher than Pittsburgh or something like that. So I wouldn't say there's a cause for media concern, but I do think there needs to be continued follow-up uh, and periodic testing to ensure that levels do go down with continued cleanup and as well that uh, to confirm whether the levels are really concentrated in that part of town or whether, you know, it's something that is variable uh, from day to day.
5: And what should residents be looking out for in the coming weeks and months? What's the greatest danger or what you're looking at is the greatest danger?
6: So in terms of air pollution, I think another big thing people are concerned about is whether there may be chemicals in the air that no one's measuring. Mm. And so that's another thing that we're trying to address with our mobile sampling. And because our particular instrument can search more broadly for a wider range of chemicals. And we hope to have some of that data analyzed soon to see whether there are some chemicals in the air that nobody has been monitoring for and, again, help you know redirect maybe some resources to focus on some of those uh, those additional chemicals.
5: And very quickly, how concerned should people in East Palestine be about your findings?
6: I have confidence in EPA, FEMA, and other federal, state, and local officials in addressing what I think Donald Rumsfeld popularized, the idea of known, there are known knowns, known unknowns, and unknown unknowns. So I, I worked at EPA for 14 years, and I know that everyone there is dedicated to protecting public health and will definitely address all the known knowns. What I'm hoping we're doing and, some, and that other people can do is to help fill in some of those known unknowns and unknown unknowns uh, that uh, people in East Palestine are clearly concerned about the continued health. We want to fill in some of those gaps to ensure that people uh, can get their lives back to normal.
5: Texas A&M Professor Wei Shui Chu, thank you so much.
6: Thank you very much.
0: This is NPR News. Coming up next on Morning Edition, we learn about a new show that sets the problems with the MBTA to music. And in our next hour, the House Ethics Committee has opened a formal probe into Republican Congressman George Santos of New York. We'll have overcast skies today and temperatures around 40. Tonight, mid-30s and still cloudy. Around midnight, the snow starts, maybe mixing with sleet and in some places changing over to rain. Snow, sleet and rain on Saturday, it'll also be windy. Temperatures will be in the upper 30s. Accumulation-wise, we may get a coating to an inch of snow around the coast, 2 to 4 inches in Boston and 4 to 6 inches north and west of the city. Sunday, partly sunny in the low 40s. Right now, it's 35 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, the Danish pharmaceutical company Novo Nordisk plans to bring 200 new jobs to the Boston area. The company says it is shifting its U.S. research and development operations to the region. The new jobs will be based at its sites in Cambridge, Lexington and Watertown. Springfield-based MassMutual is reporting a record-breaking year in 2022. The life insurance giant says its total sales were just over $39 billion. That's a 26 percent increase from the year prior. Widowmaker Brewing is expanding from Braintree into Brighton. It'll open a new taproom at the former Brado House on Beacon Street. Widowmaker plans to open there either late this spring or early this summer. It's 8.45.
11: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting Spirits, Saring Sherpa with Robert Beer, on view now. Plan your visit at PEM.org.
0: This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Chinoy. Who among us has not had a complaint about the MBTA? Maybe even more than one. Do some of these sound familiar?
13: Fire!
1: Smoke! Signal problem. Police action! Switching error.
0: What you're hearing, maybe on your morning commute, is a song from T, an MBTA musical. W.B War's Christella Guerra tells us how its creators turned Boston's train
25: tribulations into a two-act show. The thing about a show that makes fun of the oldest subway system in the country is that the jokes don't need to change that much over time. You can rely on the "T to be well, unreliable," says Melissa Carubia, who wrote the songs and lyrics for "T, an MBTA musical more than 10 years ago.
26: I went to school in Boston. I went to Boston College. And so I wrote a lot of Beeline. Mm-hmm. And I saw a lot of crazy shenanigans on the Beeline. But you know what we do? We, we turn our pain into art.
25: Carubia <laughs> and co-creator Mike Manchip first submitted the show to Improv Boston in 2011.
26: It was just a treatment. We hadn't even written the whole thing yet. They said, we love this. Everybody wants to hate on the tea. Let's go.
25: The general manager of the MBTA at the time, Richard Davey, came to see the show himself and even took pictures with the cast. And while the T has had at least nine general managers in that time, this production has had only one, Ray O'Hare.
27: It doesn't take much to bring the subway to its knees, and frankly, my friends, that's
15: quite all
27: right by me. The only thing that could make your day even more sour is if we went to shuttles right during rush hour. How about it, boys? <laughs> He's kind of a, a very kind of a stock villainous, um, sort of campy character, played like almost like a cartoon villain, and his job is to make things as messed up and confusing as possible.
25: They've performed on stages around the region over the years. Now the musical returns to Somerville. During a recent rehearsal, Carubia plays the piano for a room of actors. The show pulls no punches, comparing the T to a prison underground. The heart of the tale is each commuter has a story, a connection, and a complaint about the T. Underneath it all, it's actually a madcap take on The Wizard of Oz, except there's no yellow brick road and no blue line.
26: Three 20-somethings are trying to get around town and live their lives, but the T is getting in their way. At the end, they pull back the curtain and find out the problem was within them all along.
25: Sadie Pyatt plays Alice, a writer of The Green Line, who has a couple of choice words for the train. The disappointment in her voice is palpable as she reads out her letter of grievances.
11: To whom it may concern, I am leaving Boston. Why? Four letters. Le- letters. M-B-T-A. I am a native Bostonian, and I am embarrassed by every
5: aspect of your system, which ranks in-
25: She doesn't stop there. Doors that won't open. Doors that won't close. It's failure after failure. But Pyatt has a lot of empathy for her train. She compares it and her character to the little engine that could. Maybe a little slow, but it gets you where you need to go.
16: She is like overtired, overworked, overrun, much like America's oldest subway system on the green line. She feels like she's constantly gotta please everybody and she just can't, and at the end, she you know, realizes all she can do is take care of herself.
25: Those in the cast have strong opinions about what train line is worse. They all have specific memories getting stuck in a tunnel, watching the orange line catch fire, again. This is all fodder for the constantly evolving show. And then, of course, there are the people on the tea.
26: I remember one time I got on the tea, and there was a woman who just like reached into her backpack and got out a package of raw hot dogs, and just started nomming on those raw hot dogs, because she was hungry, and there's nowhere to cook on the tea. so...
25: That hot dog story made it into the musical in a song appropriately titled... The People on the T.
6: The people
21: on the team. they're just the same as you and me, and everybody's feeling
25: free. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Cristela
5: Guerra.
25: T and
0: MBTA musical, will be staged tonight at the Rockwell in Somerville. And Tiziana Deering happens to be here to give us a preview of Radio Boston at 11. <laughs> Happy Friday, Tiziana. What do you think? Have, has writing on the T ever made you feel
20: like breaking out into song? No, or eating raw hot dogs, <laughs> as a matter of fact. Although I might find myself with that song stuck in my head sometime on the T. <laughs> the people are. I- See, she sings. There you go. There you go. It would be nicer than the, you know, right now the only song that we ever have to refer to is that Charlie on the MBTA. So true. So it would be nice to have something new. (laughs) (laughs) Well said. How about I tell you about the show today? Please, please. So I think the thing I want to pick to feature, so celebrity chef Tiffany Faison will be back in Studio 2 with us. She uh, joins us once a month. And since it's Women's History Month, we're going to talk about not only the powerful women in her life, but kind of the fascinating, powerful women who have come up in the industry mm-hmm. here in Boston, um, who is, who is, you know, uh, making a name for themselves in the industry now as women. And then she's going to stick around. We do these Brewed brew in Mass segments where we're learning about the brewing industry in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. We have women-owned breweries today. And so Tiffany will stay with us. We'll talk about Women in the beer industry, sample some of their stuff, and it'll just sort of be a look across those industries today.
0: All right. Feel free to leave some of those samples around.
20: I will leave one for you, Rupa.
0: Thank you. Thanks, Tiziana. (laughs) That's Radio Boston. Today at 11, it's 7.51.
10: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an all-in-one hiring platform with tools to help businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates they need to fill all their job openings. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com.
13: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep.
5: And I'm Leila Falded. Saudi Arabia is considered to be ruled by one of the most conservative and socially repressive governments in the world. Genders didn't mix. There were no cinemas. But now it's morphing into a regional hub for art and entertainment. Saudi Arabia hosted the Formula One Grand Prix.
23: As he comes home to win the first Saudi Arabian Grand Prix. It's
5: a massive rave in the desert. An Andy Warhol exhibition is happening right now in an oasis city there, and it hosts an international film festival that draws celebrities like Naomi Campbell.
28: The festival is the perfect example of how creativity can bring people together and how we can learn from each other and encourage positive change.
5: But are these events a sign of transformative change in the kingdom or a tactic by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman to whitewash his government's human rights record while placating the country's young population? jid Basyuni says this opening comes at a cost. She investigates the use of the death penalty across the Middle East and North Africa for the human rights group
29: Reprieve. Why we take particular issue with the use of art and sports and entertainment in this way is because... It's very strategic on the behalf of Mohammed bin Salman. It is being used to, you know, it's kind of a gamble. If I entertain my population, they won't mind that it's coming with this huge price on their safety, on their freedom, on their fundamental human rights. That's the gamble he's taking. And it's very deliberate. It's not out of the goodness of his heart that he's opening up Saudi society. There's a lot of money there for himself and the public, you know, the sovereign wealth fund. Saudi Arabia has a very young population who have been mostly very bored for the last 30 years because of how restricted society has been. If you distract them with these things, they won't notice that from the other hand, he's making society more oppressive than it's ever been. Mohammed bin Salman will decide what Saudi Arabia will look like and anyone that has any view will will be punished. So give me an example of some of the
5: people facing the death penalty over something that seems that is non-lethal crime or a freedom of expression issue?
29: So we have a case of a scholar, Hassan al-Malki. His viewpoint is very much pushing for a more inclusive society where people from different faiths and sects can get along for a less rigid interpretation of the type of Islam that's been practiced in Saudi Arabia traditionally. And he has been in prison since 2017, he hasn't been sentenced, but the charges against him include things like owning books that have not been permitted. Mm. So there's no lethal charge against him and the public prosecutor is asking for the death sentence against him. We've just released a report with our fantastic Saudi partner, we were trying to examine if there was a change under the watch of Mohammed bin Salman um, from 2015 onwards where he becomes the de facto ruler. And what we've seen is executions have almost doubled annually under his watch. Almost 43% of these executions have been for non-lethal offenses, for cases that are involving freedom of expression. But despite these very real numbers, creatives from around the
5: region are now flocking to Saudi Arabia as a place to showcase their work. Lebanese filmmaker Dania Bder recently premiered her film, Warsha, which explores gender identity.
30: There is a willingness to at least allow for some stories to be told. And maybe when it comes to completely speaking out about the politics, that stuff, not quite yet. I don't know if that'll ever happen. But at least starting off with a human um, self-expression and each one kind of
5: telling their own story. That's the beginning. There were no movie theaters in Saudi Arabia until a few years ago when a 35-year ban was lifted. And now the kingdom is hosting film festivals. I asked Dubai based cultural strategist and art consultant Mirna Ayad what these changes mean.
28: I do fundamentally believe that you can change somebody's mind, you can influence their opinion, you can alter their thought if you do it through art and culture. I think that this is how um, we develop tolerance, we develop understanding people see
5: contradictions in this opening artistically at a time where also politically things seem to be so closed. How does that work for an artist who is making things but within the limitations of the
28: current structure? I salute Saudi artists despite however many um, restrictions or limitations or challenges they persevered. They've been collected widely by institutions such as the Tate, the Pompidou, the British Museum. There is one Saudi artist that I'm going to tell you about. His name is Nasir al Salim. He uses um, uh, the Quran as his uh, inspiration. And there is an amazing work uh, that he has created. Uh, It is a verse from the Quran that says, He who follows Allah shall find for him a way out. I'm roughly translating because I know it in Arabic. Mm -hmm. Um, But he's rendered it uh, in Arabic calligraphy as a maze. Oh, I see. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah. You can't touch it. It is the word of God. So you see, they they are extremely smart and um, they find ways. What do you say to people who say, well, this is just a way for the kingdom to paper over? its
5: human rights record.
28: I'm sick of hearing that. Yeah. Honestly, because why? I have friends here in the UAE, in Saudi, in other parts of the Middle East, and we are a determined few. And we work very hard. And we are committed to what we are doing. We believe in our countries, in our region, in our heritage, and we are proud of it. To hold the politics of a country, um, you know, and its laws in my face, Every time uh, an artist, you know, wants to stage an exhibition or publish a book and just say, oh, but it's Saudi, oh, but it's whitewashing, oh, but it's this, that's not fair. You have to see us in another light. We cannot be seen in only that lens.
5: Yeah. No, I see what you mean. But it also doesn't exist in a vacuum away from it either.
28: No, it does not exist in a vacuum, but listen... I am Lebanese originally. Yeah, me too. If you if you're going to look at me <laughs> based on my country's government and my country's political... Oh no. <laughs> you know, I mean, what's left? Come on. <laughs> you have to you have to see me from another light, you know, you have to see me for who I am. That was Mirna Ayad, a cultural
5: strategist and arts consultant based in Dubai. You also heard from Jeed Bassouni, a human rights activist and Dania Bader, a Lebanese filmmaker. Okay. It's morning
11: edition from NPR News. Our theme music was inspired by B.J. Lederman. I'm Leila Faudel.
13: And I'm Steve Inskeep.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Masters in Applied Analytics at Boston College, a degree that helps students translate data insights into dynamic business models. bc.edu analytics.
25: I'm WBUR Arts and Culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Residents of East Palestine, Ohio confront the company behind a toxic derailment, shouting accusations about illnesses spreading in the community. It's Friday, March 3rd. This is WBUR's morning edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Chenoy. Coming up, Republicans in Texas are backing a bill that would punish district attorneys who decline to prosecute crimes, including abortion cases. Plus, a South Carolina jury has convicted former attorney Alec Murdoch for the murder of his wife and son. Also this hour, in 1985, the former military dictators of Argentina were put on trial in proceedings that have been compared to the Nuremberg trials in Germany. Now it's been made into a movie.
2: It was a very brave decision and and a risky one, but also very important uh, for for building a better democracy at that time.
0: In sports, the Bruins win, cloudy today, and in the 40s, the snow starts tonight. It's 8.01.
3: Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. A judge in South Carolina will sentence a disbarred attorney this morning for murdering his wife and son in 2021. From South Carolina Public Radio, Victoria Hansen reports jurors needed only a few hours yesterday to convict Alec Murdoch.
31: Jurors deliberated for three hours before deciding to convict Murdoch for the killings committed with two different weapons, a shotgun and an assault-style rifle. The 54-year-old showed no emotion as the verdict was read. Lead prosecutor Creighton Waters argued the once prominent attorney from a powerful legal family committed the murders because his secret life of embezzling millions from colleagues and clients was about to be exposed.
14: It doesn't matter what you think, how prominent you are, if you do wrong, if you break the law, if you murder, then justice will be done in South Carolina. Murdoch
31: faces anywhere from 30 years to life behind bars for each of the murder convictions. For NPR News, I'm Victoria Hansen in Walterboro, South Carolina.
3: The EPA says it will force Railroad Norfolk Southern to start testing for poisonous chemicals. Reed Frazier reports the railroad will look for dioxins near the site of the toxic train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. Concerns about dioxins have been mounting since the company intentionally burned several rail cars worth
32: of vinyl chloride. Dioxins can be formed when vinyl chloride burns. They can cause a suite of health problems, including cancer and problems with reproductive and developmental health. The agency had been getting pressured to test for dioxins from residents, community groups, and the state's two U.S. Senators. If dioxin levels are found that pose an unacceptable risk to human health and the environment, the EPA says it will direct the company to clean up the area. For NPR News,
3: I'm Reed Frazier. In Greece, unionized railway workers are on strike for a second day. It follows this week's horrific head-on crash between two trains. At least 57 people have now been killed. Workers say the Greek government has delayed badly needed repairs. The United Nations says more than 50,000 people have now died from last month's devastating earthquake and aftershocks in Turkey and Syria. Recovery efforts are continuing. NPR's Fatma Tanis is in southern Turkey where she says most quake victims are living in tent camps.
8: There's lots of resentment at the government for its slow response in the first days after the earthquake and for allowing the buildings to go up that were clearly not up to code, and many of them crashed. Authorities have been arresting contractors and managers who were involved, but the government is also on the defensive with officials telling reporters that, you know, people are angry because the situation itself is bad and not because of government mismanagement.
3: You're listening to NPR. President Biden welcomes German Chancellor Olaf Scholz to the White House today. They're expected to discuss supporting Ukraine's efforts to defend itself against Russia's invasion. This comes as the Biden administration prepares to send Ukraine a fresh tranche of military aid. This aid will apparently include ammunition. Ukraine's government has warned that it is running short of supplies. U.S. retailer Nordstrom is closing all of its stores in Canada and cutting 2,500 jobs. As Dan Carpentchuk reports from Toronto, the Seattle-based company says it doesn't see a road to profitability north of the border.
23: The retailer says it will close six Nordstrom stores and seven Nordstrom Rack stores in Canada by late June. And its online e-commerce business Nordstrom.ca has already ceased operations. CEO Eric Nordstrom says the decision came after a regular review of the company's long-term plan, adding that the decision will streamline the company and offer greater value to shareholders. The upscale department store chain first announced plans to expand in Canada in 2012, opening its first store in Calgary a couple of years later. Analysts say it's probably the right move to close Canadian operations after losses north of the border. Nordstrom has applied for court approval for a liquidation sale which could begin by the end of the month. For NPR News, I'm Dan Carpentchuk in Toronto.
3: An opposition leader in Cambodia has been sentenced to 27 years of house arrest. Kem Soka was convicted of treason. His political party opposed autocratic Cambodian Prime Minister Hun Sen until the party was shut down. This is NPR. From
0: WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The state auditor wants to check in on how the MBTA is doing. A so-called performance audit will start later this month. State auditor Diana DeZaglio plans to look into the T's safety risk management and how it can improve. The T says it will cooperate. More than half of Massachusetts doctors say they feel burnt out. That's according to a survey done by the Massachusetts Medical Society. Doctors say burnout got worse during the pandemic. One in four are now planning to leave medicine in the next couple of years. Advocates for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities are cheering Governor Healy's budget. Her budget calls for a 14 percent increase in funding for the Department of Developmental Services. $200 million would help increase the pay of staff at day programs. Maura Sullivan with the ARC of Massachusetts says the ongoing staffing crisis is preventing thousands from getting
19: services. There's a real inequity for those folks who have the highest needs and the most complex conditions. And they are the ones who haven't been getting the services and supports really since the pandemic.
0: Sullivan says 20 programs have been forced to close, affecting thousands of people. The new owners of the state's only Black-owned newspaper say they hope to carry on its traditions. Longtime TV journalist Ronald Mitchell and Andre Stark purchased the Bay State banner. Stark says reading the banner was his family's tradition.
7: I always picked it up with my mother until so the day she died last fall. Still had a banner, and it always wanted me to pick up the banner no matter where she was. And she wanted to read the news because she felt they gave an accurate description of the black community.
0: Stark and Mitchell bought the banner from Melvin Miller, who owned and published the paper for nearly 60 years. It's 807.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Broadway in Boston. Celebrating 20 years with Lexus with the newly announced 23-24 season featuring Disney's Frozen, Moulin Rouge, Girl from the North Country, Company and MJ the Musical. Season tickets and more information are available at lexusbroadwayinboston.com.
0: Make it nine wins in a row for the Bruins. They beat the Buffalo Sabres 7-1 last night at the Garden. The Bees will host the New York Rangers tomorrow. Tonight at the Garden it's the Celtics against the Brooklyn Nets. Increasing clouds throughout the day today will get into the lower 40s. Snow moves in after midnight. It'll be around freezing overnight. Rain and snow throughout the day tomorrow. It'll be windy and in the 30s. Just an inch along the coast accumulation-wise, two to four inches around Boston, six to eight inches expected in Worcester. Sunday will be partly sunny and around 40. It's 36 degrees in Boston
11: at 8.08. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation for more than 95 years supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. More at Mott.org.
13: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steven Inskeep.
11: And I'm
5: Leila Fadil. A rural South Carolina lawyer with powerful family connections is now a convicted killer. Alec Murdoch was found guilty of murdering his wife and son. Today is his sentencing hearing where he could be told he'll spend life behind bars. South Carolina Public Radio's Victoria Hansen reports.
31: After six weeks of testimony, it took jurors just three hours to reach a verdict. The lead prosecutor looked nervous, but Murdoch smiled until the judge asked him to stand as the clerk of court read the jury's decision.
19: Guilty verdict.
31: Jurors did not believe the 54 year old simply found the bodies of his loved ones on the family's rural property in June of 2021 before calling police. They believed Murdoch killed them, ambushing Paul twice with a shotgun, then firing several rounds into Maggie with an assault rifle a weapon once owned by the family that is now missing. The defense quickly motioned for a mistrial, which Judge Clifton Newman denied.
4: The jury has now considered the evidence for a significant period of time, and um, the evidence of guilt is overwhelming.
31: Defense attorneys declined to comment following the verdict but said they are ready for sentencing. Murdoch was then handcuffed and led out of the courtroom. Lead Prosecutor Creighton Waters addressed the public and the press outside the
14: courthouse, even as it began to rain. Justice was done today. It doesn't matter who your family is. It doesn't matter how much money you have or people think you have. It doesn't matter what you think, how prominent you are. If you do wrong, if you break the law, if you murder, then justice will be done in South Carolina. Waters
31: said Murdoch's repeated lies had finally come to an end. Those habitual lies to protect a secret life of alleged drug abuse and embezzlement had been exposed. The biggest lie, Waters argued, was the one that shattered Murdoch's alibi. A video recently extracted from his slain son's cell phone showed Murdoch was with his loved ones just minutes before they were killed. And the boy he'd often called his little detective, had ultimately provided the final and crucial clue. For NPR News, I'm Victoria Hansen in Walterboro, South Carolina.
5: Now, people around the country have been, well, fascinated with this murder trial. Cable news outlets broke away from scheduled programming when Alec Murdoch took the stand. And even before the trial began, HBO Max released a miniseries. Netflix had a docu-series. I definitely watched that. And then there's the Murdoch Murders podcast. Liz Farrell is one of the co-hosts, and she's been reporting on the Murdoch family since 2019, since before Murdoch murdered his wife and son and captured the country's attention. And Liz is here on the program. Hi, Liz. Good
33: morning. How are you doing? Good
5: morning. So I wanted to start with the why. I mean, you've been reporting on this family for so long. Why do you think the country is so obsessed with this case, these murders that happened in a tiny South Carolina town?
33: I think there's so many reasons. Uh, The first being that this is a powerful family and I don't know. You think? I think that people can relate to uh, sort of the powerful guy versus this sort of community of maybe poor people who have lived under their rule for four generations. Mm. And it's just so unusual in that. And then there's the span of the crimes. There's just so many crimes involved in this one family. And then there's the lack of justice throughout the years. I think there's just sort of a fatalism here among the people that have grown up with the Murdochs that Whatever the Murdochs get into, they can get out of. So I think that that's that's sort of – those are sort of universal themes I think that people can uh, relate to or at least cheer on. Uh, You can sort of cheer on the call for justice. So I think that's what it is.
5: Well, you mentioned how for so long people thought this family can get away with anything, and then this Mm -hmm. verdict comes in less than three hours. And you've been covering the court case from the beginning. Were you surprised? By how quickly so they came back. Surprised. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm still stunned. Yes,
33: uh, I kind of was trying to temper my hopes and just saying that you know if we can get a hung jury, that is better than anything I could have imagined before. Because part of this is that the law enforcement, I would say, community or the justice system in general has sort of favored the rich and powerful in South Carolina and this family in per, in particular, because we're talking about 86 years of this family being in charge of mm. the solicitor's office, which is the district attorney's office here, and basically deciding who goes to jail and who doesn't, and who doesn't includes themselves. So yeah. I think that that was why. It was just, I really didn't know. I mean, this was a Murdoch being tried in Murdoch country, and I, I, I'm I just still so stunned uh, and, and happy, and it's it's bittersweet because obviously you have two people murdered and and just this was such a tremendous expense for the state and so much energy that everyone put into it. But
5: it was worth it. What do you think ultimately convinced the jurors that Murdoch was guilty in this case? I mean, you mentioned these other questions around other criminal behaviors that Mm -hmm. never, there was no justice in those or no, no. Yeah, yeah, so what was different?
33: Well, (laughs) I think it was the lie, the big lie, which would be the video that was found on Paul's phone in March 2022. Uh, Alec had said that he had never gone down to the kennels that night, and here we find out that he did, in fact, go down there. And I honestly think right into the middle of the trial, he was planning on leaving that sort of nebulous, uh, if not all right, denying it. So when he took the stand in his own defense and admitted to it, that was quite stunning. And then he had to retrofit his entire alibi to the evidence and testimony that he had heard over the, pre- the previous five weeks. So I think that that's hard for anyone to get past. And then the state did such a tremendous job in telling the story of what happened and, and putting it all together, so many dots to connect, and it can get sort of fuzzy, especially to people who are just joining this saga. Uh, so I think that's it. I think it was just, it's hard, you know, how many times can you tell a lie
5: before somebody stops believing you? <laughs> Do you think now that he's been convicted that the public obsession with this family and this case will continue? I actually do. Uh, We have more to
33: do. Uh, So there was the death of Stephen Smith, which was clearly a murder that was masked as a hit and run in 2015 that the Murdochs are purported to have been connected to in some way and we're expecting charges to come in that case so i think yeah i I think there's a lot of loose ends that people really want to see
5: tied up liz farrell is the co-host of the murdoch murders podcast thank you so much for your time thank you
13: the house ethics committee a committee of lawmakers in the house of representatives Is moving forward with an investigation of New York Congressman George Santos.
5: Yeah, the Republican has faced constant scandal and controversy since taking office in January. He lied to voters about
13: much of his career, his family history. And NPR's Brian Mann has been following his story. Hey there, Brian. Hey, Steve. So the investigators get into this. His fellow lawmakers get into this. What questions do they have?
18: Well, there are a lot of questions, of course, about George Santos. You'll remember he deceived the public about his education, his career. He claimed falsely his family has Jewish heritage. He even lied about being on a championship college volleyball team. But a lot of the most serious questions for this House panel appear to focus, Steve, on money. Where did George Santos get hundreds of thousands of dollars that helped fuel his campaign? In a statement, House Ethics Committee Chairman David Joyce, a Republican from Ohio, says the panel's going to probe whether any of Santos's behavior violated federal conflict of interest laws or public disclosure rules. One of their goals, according to their statement, is that uh, they're going to determine whether any of Santos's activity amounts to, quote, unlawful activity.
13: Well, that's interesting because we do have freedom of speech in this country, which in most cases includes the freedom to lie. So what, at what point would your lie become a crime?
18: Yeah, you can lie to the public uh, and still get elected, but if you lied on federal disclosure forms, if you misappropriated campaign money that was donated to you, that could be a crime. Again, that's the allegation here. What punishments could he face if those allegations are sustained? Well, depending on what this panel finds, they could recommend a reprimand, or they could go all the way and call for Santos to be expelled from the House, though that rarely happens. In their statement yesterday, the panel did point out that by launching this investigation, that doesn't signal that they believe any violation occurred. This investigation is just getting underway.
13: Isn't there an allegation of sexual misconduct entirely aside from the questions about what he said?
18: Yeah, that's another thing on this long list of questions. According to the Ethics Committee statement, this panel will look into whether Santos, and I'm quoting here, engaged in sexual misconduct toward an individual seeking employment in his congressional office. This comes after a man named Derek Myers alleged Santos touched him inappropriately while Myers was volunteering in Santos's office and and hoping to get a full-time job.
13: Uh, I just want to pause here for a minute if this involves something in its congressional office it's something from this year he just became a member of congress this isn't something from his campaign or the the past but this year that's right what does santos say about all this
18: well a, a statement was released by santos on his verified twitter site saying he's going to fully cooperate with investigators more broadly santos has admitted deceiving voters steve but says he merely embellished his resume He says there was no criminal activity. He's also repeatedly denied those sexual misconduct allegations. He describes all these scandals as part of a media and partisan witch hunt, though at this point his fellow Republicans are among his fiercest critics.
13: Not quite all of his fellow Republicans, though, right?
18: That's right. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy... uh, you know, has uh, not yet uh, called for Santos to go, and uh, McCarthy says Santos will remain a member of the GOP caucus and get due process, uh, but will not be serving on committees or see any classified briefings until these allegations are all resolved.
13: And very briefly, does he face other investigations?
18: Yeah, there there is a, a district attorney in Nassau County looking into his activities, and also a federal probe. So uh, a lot of uh, headwinds for George Santos. Brian, thanks very much for the update. Really appreciate it. You bet, Steve. That's
13: NPR's Brian Mann. This is NPR News.
0: I'm Rupa Chinoy. Coming up on Morning Edition, a film nominated for an Oscar depicts a crucial turning point in Argentina's history, the civilian trial of the military leaders who terrorized the country in the late 1970s and early 1980s. It's 8.20.
12: I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to
0: WBUR.org.
20: I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, celebrity chef Tiffany Faison is in studio too. We'll talk about the powerful women in her life in the culinary world and beyond. And then she sticks with us for our latest brewed in mass with female owned breweries in the state. That's Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Clouds move in throughout the day today, and we'll have a high near 41. Tonight, a low around 33. Overnight, snow mixed with sleet. Then a foggy, windy Saturday morning with snow mixed with sleet and rain. We'll have a high around 38. More snow expected Saturday night, and it'll still be windy. In all, we may get up to an inch along the coast, 2 to 4 inches around Boston, and 6 to 8 in the Worcester area. Sunday, partly sunny with a high near 41. Right now, it's 36 degrees in Boston at
10: 8:21, support for npr comes from this station and from drexel university whose cooperative education program lets students explore a future career build a resume and earn a salary before graduation more at drexel.edu ambition can't wait and from the lodestar foundation inspired by the maxim that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier healthier and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the listeners who support this NPR station.
13: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskey.
10: And I'm Layla
5: Falden. Few of us get enough sleep here at Morning Edition so we can put on this show. NPR's poet-in-residence Kwame Alexander makes naps a part of his routine. He's
34: back with our colleague Rachel Martin. Kwame Alexander, it's been a minute or two since we last talked. How's it going?
4: It's great. It has definitely been a minute. A lot of new developments, some pretty big changes, Rachel. Yes,
34: some changes. I made one. I am not officially hosting the show anymore. I'm not getting up early to do that, but I'm still popping in from time to time, like when you and I get to talk about poetry.
4: So tell me, how are you adjusting to not having to get up at 2.59 a.m. every morning?
34: <laughs> I will say literally every minute counts at those hours. So there is a big difference, like 2.59, 3.03. Yeah, every second. Um, I, It's good. I'm not going to lie. Sleeping more, it's a really, really good thing. But in my previous life, like when I was hosting Morning Edition, I for sure had to take a nap every single day. But now I sleep like a normal human at night, so I have released the nap for the time being.
4: I've been napping for years.
34: Have you really? Yes. I mean, I do. I really do believe that, especially if you take like a quick, deep one, it can really restore you in a very fast, efficient way.
4: Folks out there, you got to join the nap revolution. Wake up okay now i'm mixing metaphors and everything yeah
34: you are i thought you were supposed to go to sleep (laughs) how about i read a poem okay that's that's good that's a good default position you got a poem about napping well not exactly but maybe i should write one since i
4: do it so much but um (laughs) i found this poem that's kind of about sleeping and love and some other stuff but i'm only going to read an excerpt it's by margaret atwood author of the handmaid's tale i would like to watch you sleeping which may not happen I would like to watch you sleeping. I would like to sleep with you, to enter your sleep as its smooth, dark wave slides over my head and walk with you through that lucent, wavering forest of blue-green leaves with its watery sun and three moons towards the cave where you must descend towards your worst fear. I would like to give you the silver branch, the small white flower, the one word that will protect you from the grief at the center of your dream. Wow.
34: That took a turn. That went to a place I did not think we were going. That's deep,
4: man. That was an excerpt, but here's the last line of the poem, which I find fascinating and exhilarating. I would like to be the air that inhabits you for a moment only. I would like to be that unnoticed and that necessary. Wow. I would like to write like that.
34: Yeah, I I mean, I think you're pretty good at the writing thing, (laughs) but that is a beautiful, beautiful line. And some good inspiration, because we are going to ask our listeners, to write their own poems about rest, all things napping, relaxation, rejuvenation, dreams. We want to hear all of it. So you can submit your poem to us at npr.org slash napping. Then Kwame's going to do his thing. He'll take selected lines and create a community crowdsourced poem from your submissions.
4: Your prompt this time is that your poem must start with or incorporate the phrase, I would like to. That's it.
34: I would like to. So, like, I would like to take a siesta every day if I could, for example.
4: Yeah. And that's pretty much me every day now, Rachel.
34: (laughs) (laughs) I endorse. I endorse that. Kwame Alexander, The Nap King. He's the producer of the crossover TV series, which debuts on Disney Plus next month. Kwame, thanks so much.
13: Cheers. It's Friday, which is when we hear from StoryCorps, and today we have a story from New York City. In the 1990s, Chaya Chum was living in the Bronx in New York. She was the daughter of Cambodian parents, and she met a young man from nearby Manhattan. He was Eddie Rivera, who was Puerto Rican. They came to StoryCorps to talk about how their love story began in high school.
15: We had class together. It was just something about you that made you stand out.
13: (laughs) You <laughs> gave
15: me your number with your big cheesy smile. And you didn't call
30: <laughs> for like months. Yeah, You know, you never really came to class. I think when we started talking on the phone, we talked every day. Mm-hmm. And you was on the pay phone.
15: I would have at least two, three dollars worth oh of my nickels. <laughs> God. My phone that I had at home was a rotary, had a lock on it, so I couldn't use it.
30: Do you remember... Our first quote-unquote date, well, I waited for you. Oh, my God. You told me to meet you on 116th Street. You didn't show up until an hour later. Do you remember that?
15: Yes, but you waited. I waited.
30: When was the first time you met my parents?
15: At first, I was introduced as just a friend. You know, I helped out around the store and stuff like that.
30: And then you got to go upstairs to the house? Yeah.
15: But by then, you know, your parents were so used to knowing me. I don't think there was any issues. Fast forwarding that years later, <laughs> we have our first daughter, both nervous, but knew that we were gonna be good parents. And uh I remember being invited over to your house.
30: I said, Eddie, my grandmother, really wants to do a blessing for the baby. And that day I didn't understand why all my aunts and uncle, all 10 to my 20 mom, of them, my Your mom, your from, uncle, from a uncle a showed up completely
15: different state. I mean, you know, I took it for what it was I, You know, it was a blessing I thought I was paying my blessings By being there and doing, you know Something that meant a lot for your family And years later (laughs) I'm talking to your sister And she blows the whistle And says, no, it was the day you got married So then, (laughs) I then called my mom And I confirmed with her Like, did you know about this? And she goes, yeah, I thought you knew But as for getting married, I feel like I'm happy. We've lived it. Yeah, exactly. We live it. And you're an incredible person. Because even though we've been together for 15 years, I always learn something new. And you're my complete package. Everything that I'm not. I love you, babe.
30: love you too. Thank you.
15: Chaya
13: Chum and Eddie Rivera remembering their impromptu family wedding. Their StoryCorps conversation is archived at the Library of Congress.
10: Major support for StoryCorps comes from Subaru. Introducing the 2023 Solterra, an all-electric, zero-emissions SUV with the standard capability of symmetrical all-wheel drive. Learn more at Subaru.com Solterra. And from Dignity Memorial, dedicated to celebrating each life with compassion and attention to detail, they help to plan life celebrations now so families don't have to later. Learn more at DignityMemorial.com.
13: This is NPR News.
10: This
0: is 90.9 WBOR. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up on Morning Edition, train cars and shipping containers are being turned into homes for people displaced by earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. Families may have to live in them for more than a year. It's 8.30.
12: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MetroWest Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick.
23: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. President Biden welcomes German Chancellor Olaf Scholz to the White House today, where the war in Ukraine is expected to dominate discussions. The president is expected to announce another U.S. military aid package to Kiev, costing about $400 million. Ukraine's military has said it needs more ammunition to combat Russian forces. This latest package of assistance is expected to address that need. Also of concern is China potentially offering support to Russia's military. This morning at the White House, President Biden will award the Medal of Honor to 83-year-old Vietnam War veteran Paris Davis. The retired U.S. Army colonel is being recognized with the nation's highest award for bravery for preventing the capture of three American soldiers during 18 hours of fighting over two days in June of 1965. During hand-to-hand combat with the North Vietnamese, Davis was wounded multiple times. He was recommended for the honor nearly 60 years ago. Officials say the paperwork was lost twice before being resubmitted. Davis was asked about the medal.
15: While you're fighting, you're not thinking about this moment. You're just trying to get through that moment. And so uh, I didn't spend a lot of time wondering about the good, the bad, and the ugly.
23: This is NPR News from Washington.
0: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Chenoy. Governor Maura Healy will swear in two new members of her cabinet today. That includes the state's first cabinet-level Veterans services secretary. John Santiago will take that role. Healy will also swear in Kate Walsh. She'll be the new health and human services secretary. Officials in Worcester County plan to expand support for kids exposed to drug overdoses. The district attorney there was granted over a million dollars in federal funds for that work. The money will be used to partner with the National Alliance for Drug-Endangered Children. Some money will go to expanding a drug diversion program that lets young people avoid a criminal record by taking classes and by doing community service derailed train cars, fires, and delays. Luckily, that's not what's going on this morning on the T, but it is what's going on tonight at a new musical about the MBTA's problems. WBWAR's Cris reports the show opens
25: at the Rockwell in Somerville. T, an MBTA musical, has been staged around the region for more than 10 years. Co-creator Mike Manchip says the show's intent has never been to bash the public transit system. It's about giving t writers a place to commiserate.
1: Our goal is more to give people that experience these daily commuting issues a place to go to to laugh about it.
25: The tale captures the stories of commuters who connect and complain on the oldest subway line in the nation. The musical is also a subtle nod to The Wizard of Oz. But you'll have to see the show to see what's behind the curtain. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Cristela Guerra. It's thirty-three.
12: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com.
0: The Bruins routed the Buffalo Sabres last night at the Garden. The final score was 7-1. to The Bees will host the New York Rangers tomorrow. Tonight at the Garden, the Celtics play the Brooklyn Nets. And at spring training in Florida yesterday, the Red Sox beat the Phillies 15-3. The Sox will play the 20s winds this afternoon. It'll gradually grow overcast today. The high will be right around 40. WBUR meteorologist
24: Daniel Noyce says the storm moves in tonight. Clouds thicken this evening. Snow moves in around or just before midnight. We'll see a mix with some sleet overnight, even a change to rain along the coast at times before flipping back to snow tomorrow late morning. It'll be much lighter at that point. The back edge comes through 3 to 5 p.m. Snow totals 2 to 4 inches for Boston, less for the South Shore and Cape, coating to an inch or two there, and more 4 to 6 inches north and west of the city with some higher totals in the Worcester Hills, Route 2 quarter into southwest New Hampshire. The wind gets gusty too, 40 to 50 miles per hour tomorrow along the coast with some isolated damage.
0: Sunday, partly sunny with a high around 40.
10: It's 36 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio and the arts. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. It's Morning Edition from NPR News.
5: I'm
13: Leila Fulden. And I'm Steve Inskeep. In the wreckage of cities in southern Turkey, new neighborhoods are going up.
5: Aid workers are setting up rows of portable homes, tiny houses that look a little like shipping containers. They're trying to supply everything else that residents may need to live for a year, if not more.
13: And NPR's Fatma Tanis is in the Turkish city of Gaziantep. Welcome to the program.
5: Hi, Steve. Thank you.
8: What did you
13: see as you walked around?
8: So I went to a camp in Nurda, a town here that's been badly hit. There were rows and rows of these portable homes. They've got little windows, a door, and inside there's just a bunk bed and a couch that should comfortably fit three people, but you see many families with six to seven people trying to squeeze in. Hmm. And this camp is being built in the middle of an the rubble of an old neighborhood that is still being cleared, so there's dust everywhere. Um, And I met an elderly couple here who had lost all nine of their children and also all of their grandchildren in the earthquake. They said they haven't been able to sleep at night since it happened. Um, Now, the government's plan is to move everyone who needs housing into these camps for at least a year until new permanent housing is built. They've also put up daycare, animal shelters, uh, people can get haircuts and mental health professionals are available as well but these container camps are just getting set up so most people are still living in tent camps or even looking for tents and the conditions there are very difficult with no easy access to toilets running water um, and many concerns of illnesses spreading
13: i just want to be clear on something you're telling me there are some people in these container cities but you might walk a block over in the rubble and find people who have literally nowhere to sleep they're just sleeping on the ground or whatever
8: exactly or in tents
13: Okay, Um, all of this happening, we should note, is in a democratic country that has become a lot less democratic in recent years. The president has a lot more power than the civilian leaders used to have, but now he faces a lot of criticism for this earthquake and the response to it. Is he in trouble?
8: Well, many people here think so. There's lots of resentment at the government for its slow response in the first days after the earthquake and for allowing the buildings to go up that were clearly not up to code and many of them crashed. Um, authorities have been arresting contractors and managers who were involved, but the government is also on the defensive with officials telling reporters that, you know, people are angry because the situation itself is bad and not because of government mismanagement. Um, This week, Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan indicated um, that elections would be held on May 14, less than Hmm. three months left. Uh, For him, it's going to be his biggest challenge yet and lots of questions about whether it'll be a fair one. Uh, The opposition has just announced they'll be naming a candidate next week.
13: Well, now that some time has passed, is it possible to measure the scale of this disaster?
8: You know, Steve, It's still a bit difficult to process what you see here. The damage remains vast, and everywhere you go, you know, I saw piles of crumbled concrete and all sorts of tilted sideways, gravity-defying buildings that are still standing, but extremely dangerous. And the loss to human life is large. 45,000 people dead in Turkey and roughly 6,000 people in Syria, uh, bringing the total to more than 50,000 lives lost. And thousands are still missing, um, and more people are still dying from critical injuries. 1.5
13: million people homeless, some of them, I guess, getting into those container homes. Fatma, thanks so much. Thank you. That's NPR's Fatma Tanis in southern Turkey.
5: One of Argentina's defining historic events is now a gripping courtroom drama that's up for an Oscar this year. The film looks back on how a civilian court in the 1980s put the country's former military dictators on trial, something that the world had never seen before. NPR's Kerry Kahn reports.
27: As the trailer for Argentina 1985 points out, no other country in the world had ever tried its own former genocidal leaders. And what's also remarkable, says Argentine director Santiago Mitre, the trial took place less than two years after the toppling of the military dictatorship.
2: It was a very brave decision and a risky one, but also very important for building a better democracy at that time.
27: Not to mention, Mitre tells me from Los Angeles, the courtroom drama with its underdogs fight the power plot was ripe for a movie script especially, he adds, now as democracies worldwide are under threat.
2: So to bring a story about justice that really happened and that accountability was something important to bring to these days.
27: Mitri was a young kid in 1985, but veteran Argentine actor Ricardo Darín was in his 30s. He plays the reluctant hero prosecutor in the film and remembers the trial well. But he tells me from his home in Buenos Aires, he was hesitant to take the part. He doesn't like portraying real people. But in this case, he says he felt that the objective outweighed all.
7: What we did was show that there is a point when regular citizens can band together
9: with a common objective and come out ahead.
27: And he says the lead prosecutor, Julio César Stracera, was such a great, complex character, quirky, a prankster, yet in the end heroic, like the rest of the young prosecutors that joined his team. Había que tener mucho coraje, they all had valentía, so much courage, valentía. such bravery, he says. Every day they were threatened and intimidated. Some critics have complained the film glossed over such details or gave short shrift to the horrors related in the
21: courtroom. Reflexaban lo que realmente se dijo en el juicio.
27: Oh, no, it reflected what it was like, says Emilio Fisman. Now, 79, the lifelong human rights advocate was at the real trial. His younger sister was one of the tens of thousands disappeared during the dictatorship. Fisman also played an extra in the movie trial, which was shot in the same courtroom where it took place nearly four decades ago. Mucha gente me preguntaba, ¿esto es real? ¿Esto pasó? (laughs) Many people ask me, is this real? Did this really happen like this? And it was, he says, verbatim. Especially the closing argument, taken straight from archival videos.
0: Actor
27: Ricardo Darín says, unlike the real life Stracera, he choked up as he read the powerful ending, which he repeated for me in our interview, and is heard here in the English version of the film.
28: I want to use a phrase that does not belong to me, because it belongs
18: to all the people of Argentina. Nunca más. Never again.
27: Darin says regardless of what happens at the Oscars, he's proud of the film and Argentina's uninterrupted democracy of the last 40 years. Kerry Khan in PR
5: News. This is NPR
0: News. Coming up on Morning Edition, Texas lawmakers are considering a bill that would punish district attorneys who choose not to prosecute cases, including those concerning abortion. We'll have overcast skies today and temperatures around 40, tonight mid-30s and still cloudy. Around midnight, the snow starts, maybe mixing with sleet and in some places changing over to rain. Snow, sleet and rain on Saturday, it'll also be windy. Temperatures will be in the upper 30s. Accumulation-wise, we may get a coating to an inch on the coast, two to four inches in and around Boston, and four to six inches north and west of the city. Sunday, partly sunny in the low 40s. Right now, it's 30 degrees in Boston at 844.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Tanglewood and the Boston Symphony Orchestra. A trip to Tanglewood this summer opens a world of possibilities. Tickets on sale at bso.org slash Tanglewood.
0: Boston-based John Hancock Financial will soon be under new leadership. CEO Marianne Harrison plans to retire next month. She was the first woman to lead the company in its 160-year history. Brooks Tingle will take over the role. He currently runs the company's core insurance business. Gas prices in the state are now 11 cents below the national average. AAA reports the average price for a gallon of regular grade here is now $3.28. That's down 15 cents from a month ago. Maine-based L.L. Bean is facing a new class-action lawsuit that claims some of its boots aren't as waterproof as the company says. The New York woman behind the lawsuit says one of the company's boots includes a zipper that allows water to get in. L.L. Bean is not commenting on the lawsuit but says it is aware of the claims. It's 845.
12: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet. Learn how to have impact at zevin.com.
13: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep.
5: And I'm Leila Faldin. Some Texas lawmakers are trying to make district attorneys prosecute anti-abortion law violations as crimes. Brett Jaspers with KERA reports.
1: Officials at all levels of government have long acknowledged prosecutors are constantly making judgment calls. Discretion is part of the job, as it is for police officers, judges, and other law enforcement. Then the U.S. Supreme Court eliminated federal abortion rights. Dozens of elected county prosecutors swiftly declared they'd use their discretion to not pursue abortion crimes.
6: I will never prosecute a doctor, a nurse, or a woman for exercising their right to choose.
1: That's Ryan Mears from Indianapolis. Here's Sherry Boston from DeKalb County, Georgia. I am stating unequivocally that
16: I'm going to use that same discretion not to prosecute these types of criminal offenses.
1: And in Texas, Jose Garza in Austin.
2: I don't want women who live in our community suffering or dying at home because they're too scared to go to the doctor.
1: But the stance of prosecutors in large Texas cities soon raised the ire of conservative state lawmakers. State Representative David Cook is a Republican from the Fort Worth area.
8: As a district attorney, you have a job which entails looking at all the cases that are brought in and judging each case on a case-by-case basis. And so
1: if you're making blanket statements and giving blanket immunity, then you're not doing your job now cook has proposed a bill to ban district attorneys from having a policy written or not that limits the enforcement of any particular offense the bill would set financial penalties and create a process for removing the prosecutor from office it's one of many bills aimed at curbing local da's several big city prosecutors in texas are reluctant to talk about the legislation and declined interviews but da mark gonzalez of Nueces county in south texas is talking. He said the announcement to not pursue abortion cases may have been too hasty.
4: The statement may have been the straw that broke the camel's back. It'd be smarter for us to move in silence. And I think that may have been something we didn't accomplish.
1: Gonzalez is facing an unrelated effort to remove him from office and has said he won't run for re-election. He sees the proposed legislation as part of a backlash against a more progressive approach to the criminal justice system.
4: No one was thinking of these things 10 years ago before a few guys got elected who maybe thought there were some issues that were wrong with the criminal justice system.
1: There are. Similar power struggles are playing out nationally. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis removed an elected Democratic prosecutor from office last year, claiming he didn't pursue certain crimes. Illinois' governor, a Democrat, recently said county sheriffs won't be in their job if they don't enforce a new requirement that owners of semi-automatic rifles register them.
31: There is isn't just an interesting philosophical debate about where power should rest.
1: Ann Bowman is a professor at Texas A&M. She said a state can make it more difficult for a county with what it mandates.
31: There are all kinds of preemptions there that weren't there before. It's really a matter of basically a state wanting to control what's going on at the local
21: level.
1: Yet not every local official gets blowback for bucking the state. Early in the COVID-19 pandemic, a group of Texas sheriffs refused to enforce the governor's mask mandate. Yet there was no proposal to make them follow that law. Experts say that's because sheriffs align more with the conservative leadership of the state. State Representative David Cook, however, said he's open to reining them in. Here he is again.
29: I have not filed a bill in that regard, but uh, I
1: certainly would not rule it out. For the moment, though, bills targeting county district attorneys are what's on offer. The statewide association for DAs has told its members to take the proposals very seriously. For NPR News, I'm Brett Jaspers in Dallas.
5: This is
0: Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Layla Falden.
13: And I'm Steve Inskeep.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the Marketplace Morning Report tells us about a new national cybersecurity strategy just released by the White House. And coming up at noon today is Here and Now, and Scott Tong is on the line to tell us what's on the show. Hey there, Scott.
7: Hey, Rupa. Good morning. Happy Friday to you. Yeah,
0: happy Friday.
7: (sighs) You know, I don't know about your everyday life, but it is hard to get through one of my days without some mention of China. You know, the stuff that gets made there, the the Communist Party. There's an increasingly hostile tone coming out of Washington. And let's be clear, the Chinese government is showing military aggression, authoritarianism, and silencing critics in Hong Kong. But today on our show, we're going to have a long conversation with an influential scholar who worries about how Americans talk about China. Mm -hmm. Jessica Chen Weiss is a scholar who thinks it's going to backfire on Americans. It'll become an obsession. It'll crowd out questions like, is this a march to war? Is this stoking violence against Asians in this country? We've seen that movie. And what kind of world do we want instead of what kind of world do we fear? Uh, and also, we'll have an important musical interlude tribute to jazz legend Wayne Shorter. Some of the things on the show today.
0: Very important. Thank you, Scott. That's. Yeah. Uh, have a good Friday. Have a good weekend.
7: You too. Thank That's you. That's Here
0: and Now. Today at noon, it's 8.50.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Hollerin with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com
16: How do you translate the horror of World War I into a film score?
6: I want to have something for the main protagonist, the feeling from his stomach that he feels always when he's in the trenches.
16: I'm Elsa Chang. We'll talk to the composer who wrote the Oscar-nominated score for All Quiet on the Western Front. On All Things Considered, from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on
0: 90.9 WBUR cloudy and low 40s today. Still cloudy and mid-30s tonight. Overnight, the snow starts. It may last throughout the day tomorrow and into the evening. Temperatures will rise to the 30s, so the snow may be mixed with sleet at times. Sunday, partly sunny in the low 40s. Right now, it's 36 degrees in Boston at 851.
21: New high-level thinking about protecting computer networks. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by the United States Postal Service, offering
12: postage stamps for purchase at more than 40,000 supermarkets, drugstores, office suppliers,
21: and wholesale clubs. I'm David Brancaccia. The White House just released a new national cybersecurity strategy aimed at better protecting people, businesses, and the government from cyber attacks. One key piece is to push tech companies to work harder to be sure their products are secure. Marketplace's Samantha Fields has more.
16: Cybersecurity is increasingly critical to national security and the economy.
21: Ten years ago when the Obama administration would put out a cybersecurity thing, nobody cared. Now it's like front page news.
16: Chris Bronk at the University of Houston says that's because everything is connected now.
21: Suddenly the stakes are a lot higher. I mean, it's one thing for your computer to fail and eat your thesis. It's another problem if your computer fails and crashes your car
16: or if a hospital's computer system crashes, or the power grid goes down. We cannot just rely on consumer behavior for people to keep
12: themselves safe and secure.
16: Claire Rosso is CEO of ISC Squared, an association of cybersecurity professionals.
12: We have to also be able to rely on the developers of technology to prioritize security.
16: Until now, the government has largely been relying on companies to do that voluntarily. and. Certain companies are extremely responsible, others are not. Susan Landau at Tufts University says it makes sense then that the administration wants to require companies to take more responsibility. The problem is that this doesn't have concrete steps to do it, it has to be followed up by legislation. Which she says may be tough to get through Congress. I'm Samantha Fields for Marketplace.
21: Dow, S&P and NASDAQ futures are up between three and four tenths of a percent here the 10-year interest rate has fallen back below four percent now the u.s is reportedly launching a new campaign to crack down on those helping russia evade economic sanctions for its war in ukraine this according to the financial times today the focus is on a kind of laundering of trade where russia reroutes imports through countries like the united arab emirates and turkey U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen recently returned from Ukraine on the one-year anniversary of the invasion. My colleague Kai Rizdal spoke with Yellen about her trip and her view on how well sanctions are working.
12: The um, numbers like GDP growth Mm -hmm. in Russia have been more positive than we and the IMF had
23: forecast. And, And probably hoped, right?
12: Well, let me say, what we hope is that we can deny Russia access to the revenues that they need to fight this war and to the goods that they need to supply their military. So that's our focus.
21: That interview with Secretary Yellen is now streamable from Marketplace.org.
12: Marketplace Morning Report is supported by JLL, a leasing, management, investment, and technology company dedicated to creating a brighter future for the world of commercial real estate. JLL.com. See a brighter way.
21: We've been reporting on a bill Congress passed this week to prevent retirement fund managers from considering environmental, social, and governance factors, or ESG, when making investment decisions. President Biden is expected to veto this. There's growing interest in ESG where investors can apply their personal values when selecting and engaging with the companies they own. Are they okay with oil companies, firearms companies, companies with all white male boards? The issue is also getting a lot of attention in state legislatures across the country. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer has that.
32: Let's start with the ABCs of ESG. What exactly is it?
5: ESG investing incorporates environmental, social, and governance risk into investment decision-making.
32: Megan Mullen is a public policy professor at UCLA. She says the idea is to reduce the financial risk from a changing environment, social disruption, and social inequality. The governance part is how a company is run. Things like CEO pay, how diverse the board of directors is.
5: Board structure... The relationship, right, the voice of shareholders in company decision-making.
32: ESG eventually became an accepted approach to investing on Wall Street, a financial philosophy far removed from the culture wars. But opponents called it woke investing. Texas passed legislation prohibiting local governments from using 10 big banks that have ESG policies. Jason Isaac is a former state legislator now with the conservative Texas Public Policy Foundation. He says ESG discourages investments in the oil and gas industry, the state's lifeblood. He refers to these banks as the enemy and says the state shouldn't be giving them any money.
14: It's not a really good idea to weaponize your enemies to work against you.
32: Or, put another way,
14: If you're going to
23: boycott Texas, then Texas is going to boycott you.
32: Isaac acknowledges that the financial institutions Texas banned, including BlackRock, aren't exactly boycotting fossil fuels. But this is a war for activists like Isaac. He's working with the Heritage Foundation and other national groups that distribute model ESG ban legislation to state lawmakers. According to the law firm Ropes & Gray, more than 20 states are now considering restricting ESG in investment decisions, but others are backing away. North Dakota's Republican state treasurer, Thomas Beadle, warned the state legislature that restrictions could scare away investors.
21: We don't want to just cut ourselves off
32: from the investment markets elsewhere in the world. Beadle tells lawmakers it's okay if a bank has an ESG fund for its other clients. North Dakota just won't invest in it. He doesn't want his hands tied by the legislature. And there is some evidence that ESG prohibitions and bans can hurt a state's bottom line. Daniel Garrett has crunched the numbers. He teaches finance at the Wharton School. He says after Texas banned those 10 banks, there was less competition in the state's bond market. So the cost of borrowing went up.
14: This comes out to between $300 and $500 million of additional interest expenses on these bonds.
32: Garrett says even with that extra expense, he still expects more states to pass restrictions on ESG investing. I'm Nancy marshall Genser for
21: Marketplace. And the pharmacy chain Walgreens is now saying it will stop dispensing abortion pills in 20 states where Republican attorneys general are working to stop those sales. The US Food and Drug Administration has determined those sales would be legal. It's not clear where rival CVS is on this yet. The FDA has also approved mail order. Our digital producer is Jarrett Dang. Our engineers are Jessen Duller and Nick Esposito. I'm David Brancaccio. It's the Marketplace Morning Report. APM. American Public Media.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Low 40s and cloudy today, mid 30s tonight, and the snow starts overnight. Thanks for being with us this week. Morning Edition's Senior Technical Director is Mike Toda. Stevie Chapman is our producer and Samantha Kuzia, Associate Producer. Lainey Ruxtell is our field producer. Dan Guzman is our Executive Producer and our Managing Producer is Jeff Cohen. From all of us here at Morning Edition, have a great weekend. We're coming up on 9 o'clock and the BBC's Next.
12: We're funded by you our listeners and by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age, informed communities essential for healthy democracy. knightfoundation.org. I'm Tiziana Deering.
20: Today on Radio Boston, celebrity chef Tiffany Faison is in studio too. We'll talk about the powerful women in her life in the culinary world and beyond. And then she sticks with us for our latest brewed in mass with female owned breweries in the state. That's Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
2: I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.